America. We are endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. From the wilderness of Kodiak Island, Alaska, this is Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier with your host, Robin Bearfield. In a land full of peril and vicious animals, humans are the most dangerous predators of all. A wealthy, powerful man, a beautiful widow, a scandalous affair, a murder, and a suicide. This true life crime drama had it all, except for the answer to the question, who killed Cecil Wells? Welcome to Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier. I'm your host, Robin Bearfield, and I am broadcasting from the heart of the Kodiak National Wildlife Refuge on Kodiak Island in Alaska. I have a special treat for you today. This episode is largely based on the true crime book, The Alaskan Blonde, by James T. Bartlett. And James was kind enough to sit down with me to talk about the book and his research into this case. Be sure to stay tuned at the end of this episode for my interview with James Bartlett. The murder of Cecil Wells remains one of the strangest mysteries in Alaska's history. According to Cecil's wife, Diane, intruders broke into their luxury apartment, shot Cecil while he slept, and beat her in the head until she lost consciousness. Since a similar crime had occurred a few months earlier in Fairbanks, this scenario made sense, until the police took a closer look at the evidence. Wells's murder occurred in October 1953, when Alaska was on the cusp of gaining statehood. Politicians in Washington, D.C. did not intend to add a state where crime ran rampant, so Alaskans wanted to prove their future state was a safe place where law and order reigned. Solving the murder of Cecil Wells became all-important, and the success or the lack of it, could make or break the careers of the police and lawyers involved. A gung-ho police chief and a hungry assistant DA decided who the guilty parties were early in the case and led the investigation down a dead-end path. The murder and subsequent investigation affected the lives of everyone involved, and decades later, people still ask, Who killed Cecil Wells? Cecil Wells was born in Litchfield, Pennsylvania in 1902. In 1924, he moved his family to Anchorage, Alaska. He worked at various jobs, including gold panning, but he could not find a job he enjoyed, or more likely, he couldn't find an occupation that would make him rich. 
Wells temporarily moved back to Pennsylvania to work with his father, but he returned to Anchorage in 1929. He worked as a mechanic in automotive garages and opened his own garage in 1930. Wells noted a gaping hole in the automobile marketplace in Alaska, and this is where he made his fortune. In 1930, there were no showrooms or car lots in Alaska. If you wanted to buy a new car, you had to choose one from a catalog and then wait to drive it until it was shipped. Wells decided to bring vehicles to the consumers. Wells obtained the rights to distribute Oldsmobiles and opened the first car dealership in Alaska. Over the next few years, he acquired General Motors, Cadillac, Pontiac, LaSalle, Hudson, and Terraplane distribution deals. Wells opened a Fairbanks branch to his dealership, and he sold his Anchorage dealership in 1940 and moved to Fairbanks. Cecil Wells was a powerful man in Alaska who helped shape the young territory's future. He was president of the Fairbanks Chamber of Commerce and elected president of the All-Alaska Chamber of Commerce in 1953. Wells was a good businessman, but did not have a reputation as a faithful husband. He was married five times and dallied in numerous affairs. In 1928, he served more than six months in prison for adultery, a laughable crime in today's culture. At 7.15 a.m. on Saturday, October 17, 1953, Cecil's fifth wife, Diane, crawled from her apartment, number 815, in the Northward Building in downtown Fairbanks. She went across the hall to apartment 812 and banged on the door. Diane's face was bloody and swollen. She seemed disoriented and was crying. She told her neighbor, Alice Orahood, that she had awakened in the middle of the night to find two strange men in her apartment. They had beaten Cecil and hit her in the head with a flower pot. Alice Orahood called the police, and they found Cecil dead in his bed. The responding officers thought the killer had beaten Cecil to death, but the coroner quickly determined that Cecil had a bullet hole in his head. At 7.40 a.m., Fairbanks Police Chief E.V. Danforth and Officer Stanley Zavrell arrived to take over the scene. Danforth had only been the chief of police for five months, but he knew this case would be a huge opportunity for him to make a name for himself, and he was determined to take charge of the investigation. Two men wearing masks had murdered Tommy Wright, another local businessman, back in January, and the case was still unsolved. Danforth began to wonder if the two murders might be linked. In the Wright case, Wright's wife, Eleanor, said she and her husband arrived home one night to find two masked men waiting for them. The men had used a glass cutter to break into the house and drank whiskey and champagne while they waited for the Wrights to return home. The motive for this murder was clear. Wright owned three bars, and the thieves believed he would have the daily earnings from the bars on him when he came home. One of the thieves shot and killed Tommy Wright as soon as Tommy walked in the door. 
In the Wells apartment, the police called for an ambulance for Diane. While she waited, Diane called her friend Sally Martin, who arrived just as Diane was leaving for the hospital. Instead of riding in the ambulance with her friend, Sally chose to walk the few blocks to the hospital, crossing the Cushman Street Bridge on her way. Sally's decision to walk to the hospital later made some investigators curious. At 11 a.m., Officer Zavril interviewed Diane at the hospital. Diane said she and Cecil had dined with a friend the previous evening, and then Diane and Cecil went to the movie theater. Diane said her mother-in-law was watching their young son, Markham, and Markham spent the night in his grandmother's apartment. She said she and Cecil had a drink together after they came home from the movie, and then they went to bed. She said, I woke up and saw a silhouette of a man standing at the foot of the bed on Cecil's side. I nudged Cecil, and then I pinched him, and he said, What's the matter, or what do you want? Then the man moved toward Cecil, and I rushed out of bed and into the living room. I bumped into another man, and I was so surprised and terrified that I didn't say anything. He grabbed me by the arm and put his hand over my mouth. He had gloves on because I remember I tried to bite his hand. He said, Shut up or I will kill you. He reached for a flower pot and hit me with it. He reached for another flower pot, but I passed out before it hit me. I think the bathroom light was on. It seemed that I was only out a little while. It was lighter when I woke up on my hands and knees. I went across the hall and banged on the door for help. Diane's swollen and bruised face proved that someone had beaten her. But who were these intruders? Diane said the man who killed Cecil was tall and slender. She said she saw the man rifle through Cecil's clothes draped over a chair. She said she believed he was looking for Cecil's wallet. Police officers found Cecil's empty wallet on the floor in the hall. Diane said several valuable items plus $1,000 in cash were missing from the apartment. However, Diane pointed out only a few missing items and Chief Danforth noticed the killers had overlooked several valuable pieces of jewelry. He thought the robbery looked staged. Also, the flower pots Diane claimed the man had used to beat her seemed too lightweight to cause the damage visible on Diane's face. Before long, turf wars arose over the jurisdiction of this case. Newly appointed U.S. District Attorney Ted Stevens, who later served as a U.S. Senator from Alaska for 41 years, complained that Danforth was keeping the District Attorney, the U.S. Marshals, and the Territorial Police out of the loop in the investigation and going it alone. The very ambitious Stevens knew the Cecil Wells case could make his career, and he did not want Danforth to get all the glory. Because Tommy Wright's killers had consumed Wright's alcohol while they waited for Wright and his wife to return home, investigators carefully dusted the liquor bottles at the Wells apartment for fingerprints. They did find fingerprints, but they were smudged and were never linked to an individual. Cecil Wells was killed with a three eighty caliber bullet, and the coroner determined the time of death was no earlier than 3 a.m., Investigators searched for the murder weapon, but never found it.
Soon after Cecil's murder, rumors circulated in Fairbanks linking Diane to Johnny Warren, a 33-year-old African-American singer and musician. Johnny left Fairbanks in the middle of the night soon after Cecil's murder. He later claimed he'd driven to California to visit his sick mother. Like Cecil, Diane Wells had a checkered past of failed relationships. She had endured a troubled childhood. She barely knew her father, and when Diane was six years old, her mother sent her to an orphanage for 18 months. Diane married her first husband, Donald Walker, when she was 16 years old, and they had two daughters, Sandra and Bonnie. Sandra said her mother dropped her off at kindergarten when she was five years old, and Sandra never saw her again. Her younger sister, Bonnie, does not even remember her mother. Sandra thinks her mother had an affair, and her dad told her to leave. She remembered looking through the slats of her bedroom one night and seeing Diane naked in front of the fire with a man who wasn't her father. A little more than a month after Diane divorced Donald Walker, she married William Aspie. This marriage only lasted 10 months, and Diane never told Cecil or her Fairbanks friends about her second marriage. She led everyone to believe Cecil Wells was her second husband. Interestingly, a petition for her divorce from Aspie was filed three months after Diane married Cecil, so she and Cecil were not legally married. This fact never came to light before or after Cecil's murder. News of Cecil's murder and the alleged affair between Diane and Johnny Warren spread around the country. Even the European newspapers picked up the story, and the tabloids called Diane the most beautiful woman in Alaska. Diane Wells was a striking blonde. When she walked into a room, everyone looked at her. Cecil told friends when he married her that he hadn't known Diane long, but he was looking for a trophy wife. He wanted a wife who would turn heads when they went out in public. Cecil might have wanted a trophy wife, but he became very jealous when men paid too much attention to Diane. At a New Year's Eve party in Seattle, a man flirted with Diane and Cecil lost his temper. He took every glass on the table and started throwing them, smashing them onto the dance floor. The police were called to subdue Cecil. Cecil was also an abusive husband. During the coroner's inquest into his murder, Cecil's fourth wife, Ethel, testified that Cecil was subject to fits of violence, especially after he'd had a few drinks. Ethel said Cecil struck her numerous times and even knocked her to the street in public once. On another occasion, he chased her and her mother while waving a pistol. Cecil probably also abused Diane. Once when Diane's friend Judy Morris noticed a bruise on Diane's face, Diane said, Oh, that's just Cecil. While Diane vigorously denied having an affair with Johnny Warren, Johnny talked freely to detectives about his liaisons with Diane. According to Johnny, Diane first made advances to him at the Fairbanks Country Club Labor Day event where Johnny and his band were playing. He said Diane winked at him and kept looking at him. They talked several times by phone and then began to meet. Johnny came to Diane's apartment a few times when Cecil was away, 
and Johnny admitted to the police that he always carried a gun when he went to Diane's apartment because he knew Cecil had a violent temper. The Fairbanks Grand Jury issued arrest warrants for Johnny Warren and Diane Wells. Stevens and Danforth believed the lovers had killed Cecil Wells and then Johnny beat up Diane to make it appear intruders had murdered Cecil and knocked her unconscious. Johnny was extradited from California to Fairbanks and Diane was arrested in the Seattle airport where she and Markham were waiting to board a plane for Los Angeles. In addition to handing down the arrest warrants, the Fairbanks grand jury made several recommendations. Most importantly, they criticized the police investigation into the Cecil Wells murder and recommended that Chief Danforth resign. The grand jury praised Ted Stevens and recommended he be permanently appointed. Both Johnny and Diane were held on $5,000 bail. The trial date was initially scheduled for April 5, 1954. In the meantime, Diane paid an extra $5,000 bond to leave the state until the trial began. While Johnny remained in Fairbanks, she and Markham flew to Los Angeles and stayed with their friends, the Mansfields. Oddly, William Columbity, a dance instructor in Fairbanks and Diane's friend, also moved to Los Angeles, where he and Diane spent quite a bit of time together, and he drove Markham back and forth to nursery school. In early December 1953, Danforth resigned as the chief of police. In a resignation letter, he stated that his efforts to organize the police department had impaired his health. Diana Markham stayed with the Mansfields for three months, and during this time, Diane became increasingly depressed. Then, on February 14th, Diane checked into the Drake Hotel on the corner of Hollywood Boulevard and North McCadden Place in Los Angeles. The hotel put her closer to Markham's nursery school and nearer to Columbity's residence. On March 8, 1954, Columbity took Diane to a matinee to cheer her up and then escorted her back to the Drake Hotel. Diane returned to her room and began writing letters to friends and placing them in addressed envelopes. She put the envelopes on a table in the room. She then left the hotel and walked a few blocks east to Hollywood and Vine, where she checked into the Hollywood Plaza Hotel around 6.30 p.m. She signed the register as Doris May from Denver. In the early morning of March 9th, Diane swallowed 30 barbiturate tablets. A housekeeper found Diane's body the following morning. Diane left several notes, but the most interesting one said, For one thing, I am guilty too, for ever seeing Warren, if Warren is guilty. One thing for sure is Cecil is dead, and I must be the cause of it, one way or another. While not a confession to committing Cecil's murder, the note finally confirmed Diane's affair with Johnny Warren. Did Diane commit suicide because she felt guilty? Or was her attorney correct when he stated her death was due to depression related to the malicious gossip and unfounded rumors swirling around her?
District Attorney Ted Stevens saw his case crumbling. He called Diane's death unfortunate and tragic, and announced he would delay the trial of Johnny Warren. He even hinted that he might never try Johnny. After all, without Diane, Stevens had little evidence against Warren. Johnny and Diane had been involved in an affair, and witnesses placed Johnny near the Northward building the night of Cecil's murder. Then, in the early morning after Cecil's murder, Johnny left Fairbanks and drove to California. These facts accounted for weak circumstantial evidence, and unless someone else came forward with something more concrete, or Johnny confessed, Stevens must have known he would not win a guilty verdict against Warren. The surprises in this tragic tale were not over yet, however. According to the autopsy surgeon, Diane had ingested enough barbiturates to kill three people. He also noted milky fluid exudes from the nipples of the breast. This pre-birth substance called colostrum begins three to four months after conception and continues for a while after an abortion or a miscarriage. Diane's uterus was large, but there was no baby. Shortly before her death, Diane had either miscarried or had an illegal abortion. Whose baby had Diane been carrying? Was the father Johnny Warren, William Columbany, or someone else? Cecil could have also been the father. Diane must have known that it didn't matter who the father was. By the time of the trial, her obvious pregnancy would count against her in the eyes of the jurors. William Columbany was the only person ever tried in connection with the Cecil Wells murder, and he was tried for perjury, not murder. Columbany's friend, Robert Caffey, told investigators that Columbany had asked him to lie to the authorities. Columbany wanted to take the pressure off Diane by suggesting that Cecil had learned about the affair between her and Johnny Warren. This might lead the police to conclude that Cecil had confronted Warren and that Warren had murdered Cecil. Columbany was found guilty of perjury and sentenced to serve 60 days. During the trial, it seemed as if D.A. Stevens was less concerned about the perjury charge and was instead using Columbity's trial as a fishing expedition, trying to shake loose more information about the murder of Cecil Wells. However, nothing of substance came to light during the trial. In 1956, Ted Stevens resigned as the Fairbanks DA and moved to Washington, D.C. to accept a post in the Interior Department. Interest in the case against Johnny Warren waned, and he was finally officially exonerated on October 28, 1960. Police never arrested anyone else for the crime. Who murdered Cecil Wells? As the years passed, it became clear that this question would never be answered. A 2022 book about the crime by James T. Bartlett, titled The Alaskan Blonde, recounted the case and explored the setting for the murder. Fairbanks in the 1950s was a cosmopolitan place, at least by Alaska standards. Nightclubs and a movie theater kept locals entertained during the brutally cold winter months. Throw in the exciting debates about whether Alaska should become a state, 
and you can imagine the atmosphere. When someone murdered one of the most powerful men in the state, the police and DA rushed to find the killer. Did they overlook significant evidence or fail to interview the right people? Looking at this crime 70 years later, a possible scenario seems obvious. We know Cecil Wells was an abusive husband. Abuse against women remains far too common even today in Alaska, but in the 1950s, spousal abuse was often overlooked. Perhaps Diane grew tired of Cecil punching her. In the early morning hours of October 17, 1953, maybe the two got into an argument, and Cecil beat Diane in the face and then went to bed. Diane decided she'd suffered enough abuse from her husband, so she took a gun and shot Cecil while he slept. If Diane murdered Cecil, why wasn't the gun found in their apartment? Although there was never any proof, police wondered if Diane's friend Sally Martin walked to the hospital instead of riding in the ambulance with Diane so she could dispose of the murder weapon by throwing it over the railing of the Cushman Street Bridge into the Chena Slough. If not Sally Martin, then perhaps Diane called another friend before crawling to her neighbor's door. And maybe she asked the friend to help her stage the scene to look like a robbery and then dispose of the murder weapon. Unfortunately, this is all speculation. We will likely never know who killed Cecil Wells. And now, please stay tuned while I chat with James T. Bartlett, the author of The Alaskan Blonde. Welcome, James. Thank you, Robin. It's great to be here. I really appreciate you taking time to do this and to tell us a little bit more about this crime. Um, and also, I really want to thank you for writing this book. I tried to write about this crime a few years ago, and I wrote a short article about it, but there just wasn't much out there. And it seemed like such an interesting crime. There was just so much about it that that was interesting. So uh, when I saw this book come out, I couldn't buy it fast enough. And if you look at my copy, you can see it's very, very dog-eared. Um, with, all, with all the mistakes in it, you've noted all the mistakes and things like that. It's no, <laughs> I didn't. But I, I didn't. But it's, I, isn't that awful when you write a book? You, no one writes a perfect book. There's always um, some typos and stuff in them. But um, I have marked it and um, written in the You'll probably be appalled by this, but I've written in the in on it and put stars on it and everything. No, that's great. that's what you should be. That was what I was hoping because when I wrote it, I, I just thought, like you, what an interesting story. Yeah, and I it, thought, this is this is the kind of story I would want to read about. Yeah, yeah. So the fact that you're reading it and going, oh, and thinking of things that that's uh, that's perfect. Good. Yeah, I I loved it, and I also want to mention that this book was a finalist for the 2023 Boucheron award for best true crime book that's really impressive so congratulations on that yeah thanks it's a uh, the, the anthony awards are pretty high up on the scale so i had absolutely no thought in mind whatsoever that it would possibly get nominated but but it did it didn't win yeah. but the the person who won was the person i would have voted for so i didn't get oh. i didn't get uh i didn't get jigged on the on the voting yeah uh, the per yeah the person who won was a deserved winner but i think i did well 
Yeah, think- that's that's great, and it brings, um, you know, and 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 people noted it and uh, put eyes on it. So you did, mm-hmm. you did really well with that. Mm-hmm. And um, since my podcast listeners have just listened to this episode, I don't think we have to worry about ruining anything um, from the book by discussing the details of the case. But I want to encourage my listeners to buy the book because there is so much in it that I did not cover. And um, it's it's really very, very interesting. I, I know you're going to like it. It's It goes into a lot of detail about things I think are very important. I just didn't have the time to cover it in my podcast episode. So um, I've, I've read and uh, listened to some of the interviews that you've done. And you make a statement that I often make when I write true crime stories, and that's, you can't make this stuff up. True. Okay. Yeah, it, it was it was there was stuff that I was I was finding and, and that I was reading about that I I, yeah, I just read it and I, I knew that if my wife writes um fiction, mm-hmm. she writes mystery novels. Yeah. And I knew that if I read that in a fiction mystery novel, I'd go, Well, that's ridiculous, that would never happen. That's what, that's what I think, because I write fiction yeah. novels too. I think I couldn't yeah. put this in one of my novels, but no. I would say no way, this would never happen. Um, but you listed some of the things that in your research that you uncovered that surprised you. But one of the aspects that you did not mention, or that I didn't hear you mention anyway, was one of the biggest things that shocked me. And um, Diane's autopsy revealed that she'd been pregnant uh, yeah. soon before she committed suicide. Uh, she either yeah. aborted the baby or had a miscarriage. Did you know that before you looked at the autopsy report? Or no. Did you- I wow. didn't know that until I, I found <laughs> the um, the newspaper articles about it, because I actually found out about the, uh, as you say, no spoilers. I actually found out that, that Diane Wells had committed suicide before the trial early on in my research. OK, that was what kind of interested me in the story, because I read that. and I thought, goodness, you know, she must have been desperate to, yeah. to, to kill herself before the trial. I wonder what had happened. Then I read about the circumstances of the murder. And I thought, well, wow. Yeah. No wonder that sounds amazing. So it made me work back. But then as I worked through the story and found out what had happened, you sort of go through the book and go through the research at the same stage that they are, albeit, you know, 70 years apart. And I got to that stage and I can imagine sitting in the room with her. And and if she was pregnant, what she was thinking, you know, and was she thinking, who's the father, maybe? You know, it it could well Johnny Warren could have been the father. You know, Cecil could have been the father. Mm-hmm. You know, it could have been someone else that she'd met in the last four months was was the father. And I'm sure she sat there and thought, I can't go into a trial looking pregnant. I, right. I can't go into a trial even with the appearance of being pregnant because people are going to judge me and immediately jump to the conclusion, the worst conclusion. And yeah. it's not going to go well. And um I think she that played into her decision mm-hmm. and you know and and especially at that at the time unfortunately like it is now in a lot of places that was that was something you could not do legally so she then had to go and she was in Los Angeles she had yeah. to go and find somewhere if she did actually get a termination she had to find someone to help her to do that I know which that must, must have been yeah very obsessful upsetting and frightening and but then he, if she had had a miscarriage that's just as traumatizing mm-hmm. as upsetting. Yeah. You know, yeah. and yeah, that was something that uh, just added to the tragedy of it, really. Yeah. That, that, you know, she, her suicide note said, you know, she's doing this because 
she doesn't want to essentially ruin her young son Mark's life you know yeah. for him to be traumatized by this trial forever yeah and she'd just been pregnant herself and as it turned out, she wasn't successful at, at protecting him from trauma. And uh, she probably made it worse by her suicide. But um, yeah, it was, as, as I said in the book, um, when I spoke to him, I only spoke to him the once. And, and initially he was so keen. He seemed so keen to want to talk. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, well, this book is going to write itself. You know, I just have to talk to him, even though he was a, a baby at the time. He's a fully grown man now. You know, he yeah. he has every he's as close as it could be. Um, and then he wrote me the letter and said he didn't want to do it. And it had, it had brought up, essentially, it had brought up some brought up some bad memories. And, and you know, and I, I did, you know, do some research on him. And I, I, there are other reasons why I think he probably didn't want too deeply. But I did speak to his son a lot. Mm-hmm. And his son had had a tough time with his father. So it just goes down the generations. Yeah. And that um, that is one thing that I didn't go into that I just loved about this book. And. And I've found out from my stories is that violent crime doesn't just affect the victims. It affects the families. It affects the friends. And oftentimes it affects the entire town or place where it was. I, you know, it, it, it really affects a lot of people. So, um, I get, I get, um, emails from people you know i'll write about a crime and sometimes i get too into the crime you know mm-hmm. the victim the crime and and mm-hmm. i i don't think about it but then i'll get an email from someone that says that says something like yeah that was my auntie and she was such a sweet yep. woman and, and yeah. it brings you back that you know these are real people and yeah. um, these horrible things happen to them and it affected yeah. everyone they knew knew basically yeah it, it, it's just one moment as they say it's just one moment and yeah. then it just takes it's, it's like if you have a family tree, suddenly something's just taken out of a family tree. And right. that means the family tree it can't be done fully correctly because there's always that hole. So yeah. people always never know. And, you know, I was talking to people in their 70s who were going, I just don't know anything about it. It's a complete mystery to me. The family never talked about it. I really don't know anything. What do you know? Mm-hmm. And yeah. I was like, wow, I, I didn't expect that. I, I thought, you know, that it would be something that they talked about all the time. And and there were there again, there were friends of Cecil Wells's. There were there was a family friend. They talked about it right for decades afterwards. It always came up in conversation. Um yeah. And and I met them last time I was in Fairbanks. I had breakfast with about six of the family members and they were like, oh yeah, dad mentioned it all the time. You know, we talked about it. Sometimes it came up at weekends. He was absolutely convinced. He was never it, he never forgot about it. Oh. And for his whole life, you know, and so it does affect down the generations. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's yeah, it's very sad. Um, I was also I was surprised by how cosmopolitan and um, modern Fairbanks was in the 1950s, um, and you did a great job of painting the the picture of what it was like there and the northward building oh my gosh it it's like a, another character in this crime and it's, yeah. just, it's just so hard yeah. to imagine all these rich people living in this building and um they can hear each other's fights and conversations i think mm. it's through the heating ducts or something the vents. yes yeah. that's right yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, it's, I mean, it was, it's like something you see on the tv build, the building's still there and it was in a movie in in 1960 and you know, people have emailed me from the book saying, you know, I used to live in the building and we used to run up and down the corridors. There was a bar. We all used to. I mean, I, I would love to write. <laughs> I don't think there's enough there. 
but I would love to write a book about the Northwood building because it's still there. Yeah. You know, still, the building is still there. There's a there's still a couple of stores on the on the street level. You know, is there's it, still people. Is it still apartments in the building? It's all yeah, it's all been completely um compartmentalized even more now. I mean, oh, it was okay. all apartments then. They're they're even smaller apartments now. And it's sort of lower income housing, that kind of thing. Oh, okay. um, and but it's all there's a lot of apartments. There are some businesses mainly on the lower level. There's some government buildings. There's a few commercial businesses, but the building looks exactly the same. You know, it's the same building. They haven't, you know, made it any higher or painted it or anything like that. So it's just the same as it was. And it was it was the hippest building when it was built. You know, <laughs> yeah, when, when sounds like and it. were there, it was the hippest building in, in around, which is you know why they moved there. Yeah, and so that's... it's still there. And and I found that there are. I mean, it might be a question you're going to ask later, but there's another story I'm working on, believe it or not, that um, was another murder that happened in the in the Northwood building. Oh, fantastic. Um, yeah, oh, not good. Again, it, it's 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 not contemporary. I try and stay away from the contemporary things, especially now, because I realize these family members are all still around and, oh. and it's still quite fresh. Yeah, it, it's. it's I agree. It's hard to write about something that just happened. Yeah, I don't want to really upset someone who's who really is young and remembers it really well, rather mm -hmm. than looks back and go, well, it was 50 years ago, you know. Um, but yeah, there was a story that someone who read the book sent me a Facebook message and said, well, I always wondered what happened, so and so, and I looked it up. And it's it's a suspicious death. Oh, right. Um, but as you said, I need to get, as, as you know yourself, you need to find, if you're going to go deep, you need to get police records and FBI records if they exist. And you need to be able to find people to talk to. And that, if it happens, yeah. And if that, that brings up another point. Um, you, um, in this, in this, you had to do the research. I mean, you live in Los Angeles you and this crime yeah. took place in Fairbanks. So I'm yeah. sure you racked up the frequent flyer miles um, yeah. just, just um, researching it. Um, but I, you know, it occurred to me that maybe you were lucky that the FBI was involved in it because you could um, apply through the um, Freedom of Inf Information yes. Act for the yes. for the files, and it's difficult to get files in Alaska from um, the troopers or the police. Yes for a murder that was never solved for still uh, for cases yeah. still open and even an old case i don't know if this old if that's true but um, no you're absolutely right because a lot of as i as i found out during research and obviously you have there are some police forces that will routinely destroy old files as as a matter of routine there are some that will keep some randomly there were some that will keep i mean in alaska i had the problem of territorial and state records yeah because the case straddled the two yeah um so the territorial ones were hard to get hold of, but once it became a state, that was a lot easier. They were yeah, very okay. organized then. Um, but yeah, I found stuff from all over the place occasionally because plus it was, you know, 60, 70 years ago. Why would anyone have kept it other than, you know, almost by accident? You know, <laughs> right. Because it was, it's not like they're going to bring a case now. No, they're not. You know, gonna but they've, they've got plenty to get on with. They, they don't really have the time, I assume, to go let's go through the old archives yeah. and get rid of some old case you know yeah it just I mean, leaves them there yeah but exactly the, the FBI will keep them forever because it's because it's public and you can request them but i've requested a lot of stuff from the fbi over the years and you don't always get a hit very rarely it seems like it has to have been a fairly big case in some ways mm -hmm. for them to have kept it uh That's 
I've never even tried that. That's a, really a very oh, yeah, good idea. Yeah, you should. It's easy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, people ask me that a lot. It's, it's an online process. You can absolutely do it. Um, it's really you just put your name and address, date of birth. Um, you have to have some idea of the crime and when it happened and the person's name, obviously, and the date mm -hmm. when it happened, um, and ideally their birth date as well. Oh, okay. And you just put a little bit of information and you send it to them. They're fairly quick to get back to you. Often it's a fairly standard letter saying, you know, we can neither confirm nor deny. There's And then there, there's mm. a list of exceptions. There's like medical exceptions because it involves a child, because it involves this, because it, and they can't okay. give them to you. But okay. just every now and then they'll send you some stuff. So I, I managed to get, I didn't get any stuff for, from the FBI for the one I'm looking into now, but I managed to get the local police Oh, good. The inquest file, which oh, is good. Yeah, that's good. Um, that's good. But again, I had to work hard for that. You have to be very nice, as as you know, Robin. You you have to be nice <laughs> to like librarians. Oh yes, librarians. Societies. Mm -hmm. All those people be very nice and patient with them because they really want to help and they will help. Yeah. But you can't like be pushy or just assume that they've got it all straight to hand because it's not like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I I agree. I know. I know that's true. Um. In this in in this um you in this book you shed light on um a couple of things I like to really cover in my podcasts and newsletters. And the first um is um I like to talk about Alaska's history through the crimes I write about. And the second, wherever relevant, I point point out historical Alaska's historical and present deplorable statistics of violence against women. And I, mm. I'll cover this, the second one in a minute. But the first one, um, how did Alaska's history impact the investigation and lack of prosecution in this case? And I think this is really interesting because usually it's kind of the other way around. Usually mm. um, I shine a, I want the, I use the crime to magnify what was going on in the state's history at that time. But in this case, the history of the state impacted the investigation of the crime. And could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it was something that came a little bit later that, that for me to really think about. But um, I, I, I mean, I can't prove any of it because I'm sure no one would ever have written it down or said so. Right. But I think it's possible that the Cecil Wells murder certainly was certainly somewhat, certainly the family, Cecil Wells's family thought so. They thought his murder was kind of brushed under the carpet a little, mm -hmm. maybe sort of ignored a little because Alaska was trying so hard for statehood. Um, and his murder, he was pretty high profile in Alaska. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the example I give is that the day of the murder, he and Diane were supposed to go down to Anchorage for the opening of the airport in Anchorage, which was a huge deal in Anchorage and in Alaska. I mean, it's, it's the biggest airport, I'm sure, in Alaska. Yeah. And, but of course, Cecil got murdered. And his death was the headline of the Anchorage Daily Times, not the airport opening. So it was considered more important than the airport opening. Uh -huh. um, and he was quite well known and important. And I think it's possible that because of his murder and that they didn't quickly have a solution or that it didn't come to trial, let's say that. Um, mm -hmm. And then instead of it coming to trial, you know, a young woman killed herself, you know, in Hollywood. Right. They're all things that don't look very good in the newspapers. Mm -hmm. And this particular case had made the lower 48 newspapers. 
and it was being followed. Usually people didn't care what Alaska was doing or what was going on in Alaska, but this one made it through and none of these things looked good. The police weren't getting a, 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 they didn't find the murder weapon. It didn't seem like they had a strong case. Then the lead, I guess, um, suspect kills herself before the trial and leaves these very sad suicide notes. Mm-hmm. Still don't manage to bring the other guy, Johnny Warren, to trial. And all the time, they're still trying to get to be taken seriously to be a state. Mm-hmm. And one of the things, without getting too deep into the bushes, but prison system had just changed over. And the prison system wasn't run very well in Alaska. It was very poorly funded, very poorly staffed. Mm-hmm. And you know that Washington, D.C. was looking at these things. And they were looking at Alaska and going, OK, well, this enormous piece of real estate with almost no people in it, do we really want to take this on? It's going to be very expensive. What's their law and order like? What's their government system like? What's their legal system like? How are they running it now? Yeah. You know, how much are we going to have to put into the pot to make this part of the club? Mm-hmm. and suddenly they're like wait so this rich businessman has got murdered in his bed and they they haven't found the guy that doesn't look very good mm-hmm. it'd have been different if it had been in Nome or somewhere yeah. you know probably no one would have cared but this was a big city yeah. you know and so there was that and also it was the second well f- it was the second of what ended up being four uh, robbery murders in Fairbanks yeah and all of which were unsolved. So if you were looking at that objectively, you look at this and go, what the hell is going on with the police there? They're not solving any of these murders. So rich, successful white men are being killed in their homes, basically. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. the kind of place we want doesn't to take look good. <laughs> it doesn't look good. It just yeah. didn't put all the way along the line. And I, I doubt it had any effect. Uh, maybe it didn't. But... If you were looking or if you were just someone who looked in the newspapers, say, all you'd seen was murder, young woman kills herself, no trial. Um, that would be your impression of what Fairbanks was like. It's where yeah. you know, Richard got murdered and no one went to prison. And also um, the um, prosecute the pro- district attorney um, at the time was Ted Stevens, who was very ambitious and looking forward to his career. And I'm sure. Very much so. Yes. And when and Diane killed herself. He thought, okay, this is not going to be a winnable case. It's not good. Yeah, let's just get rid of it. I mean, he was he was pretty much, once she killed herself, he, I I never think he was going to go to trial anyway. I don't think, I think it was too close a call, but Mm -hmm. it obviously didn't look good that she killed herself because she was the best suspect by far. Also, he was pro-statehood. He had ambitions. This was early in his career. Right. He's certainly not going to spend the rest of his career, as young as it was, mentioning that case that he didn't solve that got to be quite famous. Mm -hmm. Why would he ever mention it again? I mean, I did. I called up the Ted Stevens archives and, you know, to see if there had been there was any specific mention of it. And there really wasn't anything specific. Yeah, I noticed that. Yeah, I looked at his early history and they they don't even really talk about it. Why why would he mention it? Because it was pretty high profile and it didn't get solved. Right. Okay. Let's let's talk a little bit about um, Cecil's deplorable treatment of Diane, um, as well as at least one of his other wives. I think Mm. I don't think I'm stepping out on a limb too far to guess all of his wives. He had five. And, um, uh, you know, we know that he he beat at least one of his wives, knocked her down 
while they were walking down the street. Mm -hmm. And one of Diane's friends saw Diane with a bruise on her face and asked her what happened. And she said, oh, it's it was just Cecil or something like that. Mm -hmm. And um, so we can guess that he that he beat her a little bit. Mm -hmm. And um, so, you know, before I read your last chapter, your last chapter is, is very good. You 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 write about what you, you think happened um, yeah. on the night of October 17th, 1953. Mm -hmm. And um, he did do a great job. You bring in so many facets of the case into, yeah. into that one single thing. You obviously really thought it out. But mm -hmm. before I read that, I stopped and said, what do I think happened to Diane? And there's so mm -hmm. many things swirling around, like you talked about the break-ins and some of the characters that Diane knew and um, things that were going on. And, and uh, you know, I kind of moved that out of the way. And the answer to me was so obvious. Mm -hmm. um, Diane was an abused woman and mm. Cecil really beat her up. I mean, you have the photos in the book that show yeah. her face that that That's last cool. day. And yeah. um, I think she just got tired of of him and yeah. grabbed a gun and ended it because she yeah. really couldn't go to the police. I mean, 1950, no. Alaska, they're not no. going to get involved in a marriage. And no. um, she couldn't claim really couldn't claim self-defense. That might work today. But back then. I think she would have likely gone to jail for many years mm. if she didn't admit yep. to the crime. Yep. So, um, yeah, I, I, I agree with you completely um, on what happened there. Yeah, it was a very, it, it's very, it, that made the case seem very modern to me because again, today, women in, a, in domestic abuse situations and men as well, often police don't want to get involved. Right. Often it's considered something very shameful and embarrassing to be sorted out within the family. And if you go back to the 1950s, mm. it was a very different social structure. I mean, this was this was when you were allowed to discipline your kids, and that was considered very good parenting. You know, yeah. it wasn't considered completely out of order if if a man did hit his wife. It wasn't that was considered to be like that's what a husband could do, right? You know, and so if and there were definite, I did get definite people telling me in interviews that they had seen it and they had evidence of him doing it. And but what was she going to do? She says she goes to the police. What's mm -hmm. she going to do? She's worried about Mark, their son. So she's going to take Mark. Remember, Cecil's very rich and influential throughout the whole of Alaska. Mm -hmm. yeah. She doesn't have, probably doesn't have her own bank account. There's no ATM cards. Right. You know, she's probably not working. She's probably a homemaker, as they would call it. So what's she going to do? Just run away? Yeah. I mean, what, what, she's going to completely start again. So as many couples will do that are in crisis or having probably they just hope that it gets better and stick at it. Yeah. And so I think that was, that had been what had happening as you, and as you said earlier, that when the police took witness statements that the day after the murder, several of the neighbors said they'd heard shouting and arguing and screaming and crying, mm -hmm. you know, even from the, the boy, which, which could have been Mark just crying because he was a kid, but it sounded like he was perhaps getting a hard time. But again, in those days, that was good parenting. Yeah. You no. Know? And yeah. so, you get yourself in that situation and without spoiling, it's a bit of a spoiler, but in the last um, chapter, when I when you say, I say what I think happens, the pictures the next day of her, she's, she's like panda black eyes, you oh, know, yeah. with a swollen face and cut lips and stuff. And people were saying to me, well, you know, that she, she, she paid for a hitman and the hitman beat her up as well. And I was like, listen, if I was paying for a hitman, I would not pay for a hitman to beat me up. I would say, <laughs> tie me up and put me in the closet. Because they yeah. didn't look like either, you know? Yeah. I'm not going to get someone to beat. And they said, well, 
perhaps a hitman, she got a friend to do it. And I was like, how many instances do you hear where you, you would ask a friend, please hit me repeatedly right. in the face? <laughs> yeah. No, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it just doesn't That's seem awful. rational. But, you know, the police found two guns in the house when they searched it, neither of, obviously with a murder weapon. And this is, a t- as you know, within Alaska, you know, lots of people are gun owners. At the time, you didn't have to have a license or anything or register guns. She may have had her own. There may have been another one in the house. But if she got beaten like she was, and I suggested like she woke up or in the in the midst of it, it might have been the first time or the 50th time she may have just gone. Right. She may have just wanted to scare him. Mm-hmm. She may have just wanted to scare the living daylights out of him and said, look, you do that again. I won't miss next time. Or she might have just gone in and wanted to scare the living daylights out of him. And I think she she hit him. She she shot him from the door or near to the door by accident and then thought to herself, okay, now what the hell do I do? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe she didn't want to injure him. You know, maybe she wanted to just hit his leg so he couldn't go on this very important trip to Anchorage, you know, to the airport. Maybe she was just aiming for his feet, you know, just to give him an injury so that he doesn't do that again, you know? Mm-hmm. These are all things that seem rational to me. Yeah. But then she shoots and she hits him in the head. People said to me, well, he was hit in the side of the head. She must have been right next to him when he did it. Well, the thing is, if you shoot someone in the head right next to them, it goes everywhere. I mean, yeah. it, it, you know, it, it doesn't, uh, you know, it's like an explosive effect. Exactly. You know, and and that's why I think what she did was she she didn't call police straight away. She called a couple of friends probably just to say, what the hell have I done? Yeah. And they would have come down and probably said, well, you know, I, I I saw this coming, you know, maybe I saw this coming. You still shouldn't have done it, but it, I, I saw this coming. And then they may maybe try to decide what to do and to stick to a story or come up with a story. And there had been robberies recently. Mm-hmm. Rich people had been, two men had broken into rich people's houses and stolen money and shot people. Mm-hmm. So that was a, utterly plausible story and it was yeah. still a plausible story she mm-hmm. she stuck to that till the end she said it was two men who broke into the apartment yeah yeah that's uh and and you know she'd just been beaten up she probably couldn't think no. very clearly you know no. <laughs> I wouldn't be no, able to I mean, think it, clearly if i'd had that much head trauma no. no i mean she she was she was you know she'd clearly been beaten and she was i'm sure she was terrified and hysterical and was thinking right well i'm, I'm going to jail mm-hmm. i'm going to lose my son she already had two daughters from her first marriage that she was estranged from that right. she wasn't in touch with. So she's like, so now I've lost another child, never going to get to see him again. Mm-hmm. You know, and the thing is, this this isn't my fault per se. You know, he's been treating me badly for years, but no one's yeah. going to care. They're no. just going to look at me and go, oh, look, it's which is what they did. Oh, look, the young, blonde, attractive wife. She's obviously after his money. She must have, she probably realized they were going to find out about Johnny Warren. And she was like, well, that's it. I'm going to be condemned. There's no chance for me. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's, I'm sure it's a helpless feeling. And uh, yeah. w- women get trapped into that uh, even today. And Still happens can, today. That's the yeah, thing. And yeah. the 1950s in Alaska, that uh, <laughs> was not a good time for women in Alaska. No, no. Well, I, I, um, boy, I have, I have tons of more questions, but we are running out of time. Um, so I want to thank you so much. Oh, I'm so sorry. I went on too long. Do you have a couple of quick ones? I'll give one sentence answers. Was there, was there one you really wanted to ask? <laughs> well, no, I was going to go into a little bit into Johnny Warren and, um, yeah. 
And, you know, that was salacious. That made the tabloids. Um, yeah. And, but I don't, I mean, you know, married white rich woman and an African-American married um, musician had an affair. And, but I don't really think that factored in too much to the investigation. And yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. You know, and you brought if Johnny that had up. Been a, if Johnny had been a white guy, I think they'd have left it alone. But uh, they, they kept the investigation going for years after Diane's suicide and 56, 57, they were saying, oh, we're about to go to trial. We're about to bring Johnny to trial. And then they'd immediately cancel it again. Oh, you know, and, and part of that was, again, I'm sure, because they were going for statehood and were going, have you still not solved that case yet? That's still not come to trial. What's happening? Oh, we're bringing him to trial. We're bringing him to trial. <laughs> you know, maybe it was that. But yeah, he was definitely, uh, they were definitely going to go for him if yeah. they couldn't get her. But in the end, they, they couldn't. Because I don't think he had anything to do with it. I doubt he was even yeah. within, you know, 500 yards of anything on, not that night. And yeah, and all they had was very, very loose circumstantial yeah. evidence, and 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 yeah. it just didn't didn't hold true. No, I mean, he was he was at the Northwood Building the night of the murder. But as you've said, the Northwood Building was kind of like a, a center of what was going on downtown. Mm -hmm. There were bars there and cafes and stuff. Lots of people would have been at the Northwood Building. Yeah. It wasn't. A, building there were all these other businesses on the bottom floor right so, so it yeah. wasn't weird that he was there he wasn't hanging around on the steps and everyone was thinking what's that guy doing there <laughs> there were tons of people there so that was about the closest they had and yeah. then yeah that he'd been having an affair with her and but that was enough for a conspiracy and that was what they looked at yeah well, thank you, James, so much for talking about this. It's a very interesting book. I really, really highly recommend it. If you like true crime books, you will love this one. It's very, very well written. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you to my patrons for your support. Check out the show notes for more information on how you can support this podcast and unlock extra episodes by joining the Last Frontier Club. If you haven't already done it, be sure to join the Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier Facebook group and chat about the podcast. I'll see you soon for the next episode of Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier.
At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's learning environments are designed for supportive networking and collaboration. With over 330 academic programs, GCU provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.